Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Cameron Maitland, who's the co-host of the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast and the film and content specialist at Hollywood Suite, which owns and operates four HD channels featuring the iconic movies that define the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, as well as essential Hollywood classics from the Golden Age. Cameron's written the service's news series, A Year in Film, which takes deep dives into a single year of cinema. The first season, arriving this month, looks at 1978, 1983, 1992, and 2007. To that end, Cameron picked a 1992 movie, Boomerang, Reginald Hudlin's comedy starring Eddie Murphy as a womanizing executive whose world is turned upside down when his new boss, played by Robin Givens, turns out to be a far more ruthless player than he could have ever imagined himself to be. With a packed supporting cast that includes Halle Berry, Chris Rock, Martin Lawrence, David Alan Greer, Jeffrey Holder, Leela Rashawn, Tisha Campbell, Grace Jones, and Eartha Kitt, it was a very different venture for Eddie Murphy after movies like Harlem Nights and Coming to America, and a very different picture, period. You'll see. This is someone else's movie. I think I was considering both films that were in A Year in Film and ones we had on air, and also just thinking I kind of had to live the life that I'm sure you live, where I had to watch hundreds and hundreds of movies, and thinking of ones that stood out to me as uh, interesting, like particularly nostalgic a bit. I remember seeing it on TV as a kid and really enjoying myself, and also... um, I think it's just a very unique moment in uh, black filmmaking, uh, 1992. So uh, I find that one to be a very interesting one because it's uh, just, it was very popular at the time and it's kind of disappeared. Um, yeah, I, yeah. When, I'm glad you brought that up first because it, it's a film I have not thought about really yeah. since maybe the DVD release because there was this big deal about that. Yeah, and that would have been I want to say ninety eight or ninety nine. It sure. wasn't like it was. All, it's twenty years ago. Yeah, and I saw it theatrically in ninety two mm-hmm. in Toronto, where you do not, you know, uh, have a public preview of a of an Eddie Murphy film on a Wednesday night <laughs> uh, without being shouted at constantly by people like asking for the ticket. Yeah, it was uh, it was hugely in demand, and it played to a dead room. Like nobody laughed. I remember mm. thinking, I think I saw it in the Uptown One. Sure, with like. 700 seats, and it was packed, and it was quiet, and it was weird. It was like they were really uncomfortable, and I will set, yeah. set up the subject yeah, yeah. matter already in the intro. So no, no absolutely. If you want. It was like they were watching, it was, it was like they were really uncomfortable watching Eddie Murphy play a defensive character. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, when you read the development of the movie, it was all about Eddie Murphy wanting to do something different. He'd felt a little pigeonholed in the 80s movies. Sure. Uh, the director, Reginald Hudlin, talks about that Hollywood wanted Eddie Murphy to be a con man <laughs> and wasn't very comfortable with him being actually good at something and, <laughs> and successful. Um, so, yeah, it is this very strange thing. And Eddie Murphy is also more or less the straight man, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he... I think the Eddie Murphyisms really pop when they happen because he's not so wacky. But um, the other thing that Reginald Hudlin especially was interested in was building a cast around Eddie Murphy because he felt that these comedies that were just Eddie Murphy forward were doing him a disservice because it didn't have good comedians around him. Well, yeah, he was constantly, to guarantee him like the top position in, in, in any conflict, he had to be... Surrounded by people who were not as strong. Yeah. Like so, by definition. 
that's kind of an unusual thing about the movie. So I think if you're going in looking for Eddie Murphy, you're not going to get it. But you do get, you know, uh, really great female comedic performances. You get a lot of Martin Lawrence and and even a kind of a muted but interesting David Allen Greer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's. I think I just find it to be a very unusual movie and very unique tonally. But the other interesting thing for me, especially somebody kind of picking through this very pointed film history, is it was a very successful movie. Uh, it was the highest grossing uh, African-American romantic comedy until I think Think Like a Man, maybe. So that's like almost a 15-year run as the highest grossing ever. Uh, it's a movie that Reginald Hudlin notes a lot of people said wasn't successful when it was hugely successful. Um, so, yeah, it's just interesting how much these films are lost. Like how much, especially as uh, people, experts going through it, you just pull up the top ten movies of a year and there's usually one that you're like, I haven't thought about it yeah. or what is that? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I mean, same with the Oscars nominations for Best mm. Picture, right? There's always a like towering inferno in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 you, you should have been up in the same year as Godfather 2. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that all makes sense. Boomerang, though, and I, I think I also mm. have to preface this entire discussion by saying we are two white guys. Yes, very white. <laughs> talking about this film, which uh-huh. is clearly not made for us, yeah. uh, either now or then. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about, um, well, it's not about. It felt like at the time an about face for Murphy after Harlem Nights, mm-hmm. which was actually a failure. Yeah. I mean, it didn't make money, and it's, I think, almost universally loathed. Uh, the excess of misogyny that that film had yeah. is really now, what, I guess 30 years later, still horrifying. Yeah. And this was marketed as a corrective. Like, yeah. That was part of it. It's like Eddie Murphy is being yeah. nicer, kinder, gentler. Oh, too much so. Look at him. He's being pulled yeah. by the stronger woman. <laughs> but it becomes the joke that, that he doesn't mean to be. He starts out as a player or who fancies himself as one. And he is immediately derailed by a uh, 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 by Robin Givens' character, yeah. who is who is a how would you describe it? I mean, she's forthright. She's yeah. She, she's a female player essentially. Yeah. She is a like a, a kind of a hard as nails executive, and she falls into the yeah even further opposite where she's arguably kind of sexually humiliated him at work. Mm-hmm. Interesting, as a man would to a woman, she's said how good he is in bed. And then the whole company, because he works for a cosmetics company, right. so it's all women, basically. So it kind of comes out, yeah, she kind of makes him this, <laughs> yeah, company joke that he's so good in bed, um, which ends up devastating him. But, yeah, you're right. It's It's all kind of that feeling of a new... Turn and I think Eddie Murphy wanted it. I think. Uh, well, he was also making the distinguished gentleman for Disney at the yeah. time. Like he was really pivoting away from the. Uh, he was also, if I remember correctly, it wasn't really a thing then. It is now when people discover the the incredibly crass, crude, homophobic, misogynistic oh, yeah. stuff from his stand-up act, yeah. which again was <laughs> the style at the time. Yeah. Right? So it's hard to come down on him for it now because I mean, if you look at Richard Pryor ten years earlier. Sure. Yeah, I do think that there is, like, definitely that's another caveat where I'm like, I absolutely forgive anyone uh, who 
just can't watch Eddie Murphy yeah. because that that stand-up stuff is pretty vile. And I think it's worth noting, another fascinating thing picking through this history is noting how often that vile stuff was considered vile even at the time. Like, that, like Raw was protested yep. by the queer community. It's like people felt, even in the late 80s, that it was particularly homophobic. And I'd say that, like, it's worth noting this movie is not free from that. There's, like, a bit of a transphobic riff that's yeah. not great. Uh, there's some like gay microaggressions but there's also interesting stuff I think built into it where for instance Halle Berry calls him out on being like needlessly homophobic she says like don't you ever look at a guy and be like that is a handsome guy (laughs) and he refuses to admit it Um, yeah so it's very interesting because it does seem like it's kind of trying to change his image but at the same time what Reginald Hudlin says is that it it's the one that everyone's like, well, that didn't really do anything in Distinguished Gentleman. That, that's Eddie because it's just the same thing. He's like a fast-talking con man on Capitol Hill. Uh, but this was the successful movie and that one wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. It does seem like it was particularly in the black community. Um, it has a hugely successful soundtrack. Like it's, it's this real uh, flashpoint of the era, but it never really went anywhere. That serious, like, I mean, Eddie Murphy said he was kind of painting himself as Cary Grant. Yeah. You never saw another Eddie Murphy as Cary Grant performance, particularly. No, which is a shame because he's actually good at it. Yeah. Like, he's good at being the reactive performer. Um, people forget on Saturday Night Live he wasn't always the, the force yeah. in those sketches. Sometimes he just waited and took his moment and then just went back to waiting. And it, that stuff is the most you know, sort of tense and electrifying material. As you said, it feels like it's in conversation with his image. It feels like he's trying to understand it himself. Yeah, and I think also understand, I mean, both of them talk about, uh, both uh, Eddie Murphy and Reginald Hudlin talk about also this kind of grander plan to make sort of old Hollywood movies for African-American people. Like, this this movie is all about very rich people. It's all about very well-dressed people. Like, I mean, Eddie Murphy's just in Terry Mugler the whole time uh, in these cool, cool outfits. Um and yeah, so they had, they literally had this idea to kind of change things in the film industry and open up a new avenue. And they especially cared about affluent business people. They were like, that's not a thing you saw all the time. And also, it was a thing that Reginald Hudlin and Eddie Murphy are like, that's what we are. <laughs> like, why are we uh, telling stories about a completely different group of people? When, you know, we can show characters eating at the places we eat and going to the clubs we go to. Um, Yeah, so it's very fascinating. I mean, in 1992 is a year where there's about, I think, five or six major films by black directors, uh, which is super unusual for the time. And it's also kind of fascinating because it just stopped. Like, it's really 1992. There's a spike. Uh, My pet theory is that the L.A. riots scared executives away. Um, But that's just me. I'm sure a... uh, like a, a better African-American cinema scholar could probably point to something else. But, yeah, it's it's very fascinating to think that there was this attempt of, like, a sea change kind of between uh, Do the Right Thing and House Party, which Reginald Hudlin made, which was also the mo- one of the most profitable movies of the 90s, which everybody kind of forgets about. Yeah. <laughs> House Party is an oddity in a well, it's DVD like, bin. It's like the Friday films, right? Yeah. They, they didn't play... To everyone, mm-hmm. and so therefore they couldn't have been successful. Look, yeah. Much like Boomerang, right? Yeah. If the white audience wasn't into it, yeah, you never think of it again, and then you find out it made what 160 million dollars domestic or something. It was, it was, yeah. Is that right? So it was big. It was big. Yeah. At the time, it was that, that's a big number, 
and you turn around and oh yeah, people are still like it's it's the well I guess the other one is coming to America, which mm-hmm. is you know like John Landis directed by a white guy, made written by white guys. Yeah. Although, um, Boomerang is written by white guys. Yeah, it's worth saying. Barry Blaustein made Beyond the Mat, which I've never understood. Yeah. this amazing wrestling documentary could come out of the guy who wrote. Eddie Murphy comedies. Well, maybe he just like he's a, a person who loves people. That's yeah. what they always say about documentaries. But yeah, I, uh, it's interesting. And I also like. I guess the thing that I would say about Boomerang as a white viewer is I think it is a good, fun romantic comedy. Like this does deserve to be, especially as a romantic comedy, in the conversation of '90s romantic comedies. And it is quite stark. That it is absolutely left out because this is a—it's an all-star cast. Like it's yeah. a cast that is wild uh, that it ever came together. And Reginald Hudlin says that, like he—he he says that when they were making it, he is like, "People are going to say in ten years, how did this cast all come together at the same time?" Uh, so yeah, and I think it just to me it really confronts my own bias uh, towards. Uh, black filmmakers and and just noticing the bias in the canon that there are these big movies that were big that essentially get left off uh, they they were on cable when I was a kid I mean obviously I, I am a hashtag 90s kid <laughs> so I loved all these movies like uh David Allen Greer and Damon Wayans were my favorite actors when I was a kid. I, I was always, like I was first lined up for blank man you know um, so yeah it's it, it's kind of odd to me that that was such a big part of the culture when I was young and that you literally, you kind of saw it fade away and then saw it luckily now bloom in kind of targeted things. Reginald Hudlin went on to be the creative director at BET. So I think he, he continues to be this huge influential character. I mean, he wrote some of the great Black Panther stories. It's like, he's a very fascinating guy. Um, But yeah, it, it kind of came out in a different way. But for a minute there, Everything, <laughs> everything was this one way, uh, and I think it's always important just to remember that. And it's important as a, especially as a white viewer, to go back and try to find these films because there's a lot of great movies, and it doesn't matter what race you are. You know, this is a very funny movie. It's very charming, uh, and it, yeah, it should be playing as often as uh, you've got mail or something <laughs> dumb like that. Yeah, well, I mean, it did strike me this time that it is effectively the better version of. What women want, sure. Uh, in that it doesn't rely on. I mean, it's it's exaggerated <laughs> yeah. in a different way. It yes. doesn't rely on magic, yeah, uh, or, or telepathy. But it it is about someone learning lessons and internalizing them and deciding to be a better person, and without the problematic aspect of having it be Mel Gibson. Yes, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> slightly less problematic. Eddie slightly Murphy, slightly <laughs> less problematic. Although now I'm, I was kind of wondering too if it's like if there's going to be a, a back not back catalog effect, that's the wrong mm. term, but with, with Dolomite coming out, yeah. like, or readily available now, mm-hmm. you have a movie where Eddie Murphy sort of almost celebrates his poorer qualities, yes. his uglier material, yeah. from a perspective of self-awareness. Yeah, and I, I think, honestly, another thing that helps me uh, nowadays be more into Eddie Murphy is I think he's done a, a really admirable job of owning up to his old work. Uh, a lot of comedians would say it was what it was at the time. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't. He is, like, as close to being fully apologetic as you can be while still respecting your work. Essentially saying that I was a 23-year-old who was a jerk yeah. and uh, was airing my opinions on a stage that probably shouldn't have been that big. And also he even says that, like, a lot of what he was doing was just easy targets. 
yeah. and that's like not even good comedy to him. So I think, especially in that generation of comics, for somebody to own up like that is very admirable. So that makes me be more like, yeah, okay, you know, he he is one of the few good ones. Yeah. So maybe we should hold Eddie Murphy close and and look back at this catalog of so many movies. Um, and yeah, so many little gems. Like, I mean, Bowfinger is another one of my beloved movies uh, that I think kind of bobs in and out of people's yeah. consciousness. Yeah, uh, I, I yeah. think, again, it's one of those movies that uh, Paul Shear brought it onto the podcast mm. a couple of years ago now. And we were both surprised at the time that there wasn't a Blu-ray. It's just yeah. Like, yeah, nobody really seems to care about this stuff. Yeah. And then it came out three weeks later, so that was <laughs> all right. But I, is Boomerang available on Blu? I don't know it's, it uh, I mean, it's on our channel and streaming, but I don't know that it's available on Blu-ray, to be fair. No, I, it's, yeah, another unusual one. I, I think sometimes the rights to these movies just kind of float around and disappear. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's it's had a few big anniversaries, and I know that that soundtrack, people always bring it up, too. <laughs> so maybe maybe it'll get something. But, yeah, it's, and also I just I encourage anybody to listen to talks with Reginald Hudlin because he's a very great speaker, and he's this very kind of fascinating character. I mean, his, his father was a, a very big businessman. Uh, his brother's also a filmmaker. Uh, his uncle uh, taught tennis to Arthur Ashe. Like, he's, uh, he's this really, really interesting character who talks very interestingly about his films and very in-depth. So, yeah, it deserves a, a good treatment and a good kind of look back, I think. Yeah, I wonder what happened. I mean, not then. Mm. We know what happened then. Yeah. But subsequently, it's just because clearly it took a while to become a favorite. Yeah. Maybe that's it. People just had to see it and catch it and grow up with it. It's true. I I think uh, YouTube helps a lot with these movies. I think Boomerang is a wonderfully clippable movie. I mean, if you just cut out Eartha Kitt's part or uh, Grace Jones in the restaurant or Grace Jones's ad, uh, pretty much any Grace Jones bit is wonderful. Uh, And it really makes people curious about the movie, even if those more over-the-top moments don't really suit the kind of uh, subtle dramatics of the rest of the film. Yeah. Uh, it, it does yeah. seem to be at war with itself comically, which find, oh, yeah. which I find fascinating. It's the that's the Marx Brothers thing, right? Where we're not following. It's the you know every Marx Brothers movie had to have a straight dull couple, yeah, because the audience needed something to root for. They thought, yeah, and what the Marx Brothers needed was a cause. They needed to help the couple get together or frustrate them or something. And with Boomerang, it did it. Yeah, Murphy is playing the softest version of all mm-hmm. of his characters. And so he's surrounded by these overpowering, strong, yeah. ludicrously powerful people. Even yeah. if they don't have actual power, they have intimidating charisma. And I just, I remember the entire audience, the one big laugh I remember was Grace Jones naming her perfume. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Steel vagina. <laughs> yes. And the whole room gasped <laughs> and then started laughing. Yeah. But it was the only release the film offered. Yeah. Which was kind of weird to my audience. Which oh, yeah. I'm sure at that time would have been like 75 to 80% white. Yes. Yeah, and I, but I do think it, it is all over the place tonally. And you do learn, like digging into it, that I think that they punched up a lot of bits. Uh, for instance, that steel vagina, I believe, is almost 100% improvised. <laughs> it's just Grace Jones going off. Uh, but also there's interesting bits like the the Thanksgiving dinner with uh, John Witherspoon, which is so funny, yes. was he added. Was a late ad, right? Like he yeah. was actually yeah. parachuted into the film. Yeah, post. It had been edited, it had been finished, and Eddie Murphy just came back and yeah. said, oh, we need this uh, sequence with John Witherspoon. And it's delightful, yeah. but it's very odd. <laughs> like when you think about it, it's like, yeah, you could cut that bit out entirely, but uh, – 
Yeah, so I, I don't know. Something about that, like, like a shaggy comedy, also pleases me. And also, yeah, I, I kind of feel that it's a long movie. It's two hours yeah, it almost. Two full hours. Uh, and it's weird because it kind of is two movies. Uh, like you could almost just have the rom com without all these other characters. Uh, but something about the broader comedy helps the romantic comedy kind of go along. Uh, and you enjoy the quieter, sweet scenes um, because it's this kind of interesting outside relief. And, and that Halle Berry, who's not a super interesting character either, she's mostly just a beautiful lady who's nice and artistic. Right. She likes Star Trek. That's nice. That's, true. <laughs> That's the one cutest part probably. Uh, but, yeah, it, ma- it makes her a little better because she's kind of the only sane person yeah. in this otherwise nuts movie. She's there to ground it yeah. in a way. But she's also, and I don't mean to insult her, mm. she's great. Like, she is relaxed and naturalistic in a way yeah. that she doesn't really do that much anymore. Absolutely. Or I almost yeah. right after that stopped doing. Yeah. And even just thinking of her, it's crazy to set up this movie where she, I mean, they they all say that she's super beautiful, but she is like the quiet nerd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> compared to Robin Givens, which is crazy. I, but I mean, yeah, you have to find this person. And they say that it was pretty much just Halle Berry. Like yeah, Halle Berry walked in the room and they were just like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So Which, again makes perfect sense. Yeah. And she had a, she hadn't done a lot of movies before. She has one with Tommy Davidson, that's all right, but she was much more kind of the over the top person in that movie. So yeah, it's you're right. It's a side of her that is also every once in a while when you go through these old movies and you see early performances, right. you're like, "Oh yeah, man, could Halle Berry just be like the cool, relaxed lady, and now she's like, yeah, she seems like she's probably cool and relaxed when you hear interviews and stuff. Yeah, I wonder if she's come back around to yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. Like, and also, yeah, the, you watch this movie and you think, like, man, there's so many. Like, you could pair up a wonderful uh, African American romantic comedy right now, and it's like, yeah, yeah there where's must, that? There must be some. But, uh, there are, the, yeah, but there, are, you know, but they, Tyler Perry is making. Yeah, it, right? like, exactly. So, they, so they're pandering in a way that. Maybe hmm. even Boomerang doesn't do. Yeah, and I, I don't think Tyler Perry always gets the kind of big name, you know, actors that you want to see That's in these true. movies too. But yeah, the, the movies come out. I mean, uh, Best Man Holiday was great uh, in a fairly recent one, and oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's a, it's a, it's just a movie that always makes me like scratch my head, and I think that it's very important, especially as a white guy with glasses who talks about movies, <laughs> to advocate for these movies because. Yeah, they. The thing is, is a lot of movies are messy. <laughs> a lot of movies are totally all over the place. Uh, so why why is this one particularly forgotten? And and especially for people who love comedic actors, and I, like I say, I think especially women's comedic performances, which does not happen in a lot of, especially eighties mm-hmm. and also nineties. Just about everybody gets to have some really fun moments, like down to our Robin Givens, you know. Uh, Tisha Campbell is very funny as this silly neighbor that just pops in now and again. So I really always like that. So few women are given the chance to be these super broad caricatures. And the fact that Eddie Murphy stepped back and allowed that is great. Like almost every woman except for Halle Berry gets to have some real over-the-top moments. And Murphy, I guess, comes closest with the orgasm scene, which is... So uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, it really yeah. is. I, I'm trying to figure out, like, is it the best thing he's ever done or the worst <laughs> mistake he's ever made? Because he plays it for 
I, I, unfortunately, Cosby-esque broadness, sure, right? Yes. Like the, yeah. the expressions and the noises. Yeah. But at the same time, it just goes on so long that yeah. you would, I, I came around to admiring it. It's like the, the <laughs> it's like the rake gag. Yeah. In The Simpsons, you just really you're going to keep you're committing. You're going to keep doing this. But it is like I get it comically how it would be on a page, and someone would say, "No, no, this is the ultimate expression of his vulnerability mm-hmm. and his wonder and all of that," <laughs> and it just keeps going, and that's. It is daring, right? Like, that is a choice. (laughs) Yeah, there's something I think about the sexuality that's quite interesting, too, because it... It never, you know, for a, for a Cary Grant movie, it yeah. never lightly pans away. Exactly. You get some pretty pretty erotic moments, and you get some pretty goofy moments, and these weird turns, which, yeah, I do think is actually pretty vulnerable. I think there's a, a, a thing where a, a lot of 80s stars especially didn't have a lot of sex on screen, except for the, like... Fancy, you know, your American gigolos and things. Right. But like Arnold Schwarzenegger is a guy you never really saw no, have I'm, sex. I'm thinking about Tom Hanks, right? Yeah. The way in the 80s he was sexualized, but he mm-hmm. not allowed to actually be no. shown to do anything or to enjoy anything or even wake up the next day. It was, it was like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stuff like Turner and Hooch where he's got flirtations, <laughs> but yeah. he's not allowed to. Yeah. Because it's about nice guys and yeah. it's about softness. Yeah, it's it's very it's a, a very unusual thing I find, I, and I don't know why. And I mean, I also think it's very radical to have any black sexuality on film, uh, because you know that's always just doing something new, especially without the white gaze involved. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, it's it's an interesting thing though. I I don't know if I approve or not. I think that sometimes the sex is a little unnecessary, but that orgasm is. Funny, at least. It's, I agree that it's like, I, I don't know if this is the best you know, it, idea. Like you feel like you're seeing something you shouldn't be seeing, which I think yeah. is like the best thing about any kind of intimacy. Where you, mm-hmm. I don't think it's intentional, is my point. Yes. I think it's a weird miscalculation, but it's also really brave. Yeah. And I think that that's probably, if I said most of what I like about Boomerang, it's a weird miscalculation. <laughs> uh, but it's fascinating. Um, yeah. I Yeah. And it's also interesting because I think you could... Like you were saying, with what women want, this movie borders on him just being a you know he's acting like a woman, right? Uh, but I mean, kind Jones of pretty much calls him on it, yeah. But it kind of doesn't quite do that, which is nice. And I know part of it is uh, it was originally written that he would choose neither woman, and the choice was just to get back together with his guy friends. That them hugging on the roof with the Empire okay. State Building was meant to be the end. Um, oh, that doesn't work. No. <laughs> no. I mean, no. I don't think that there's much of that movie left. Right. Um, but it was originally just going to be about kind of this fallout caused by this relationship, and then it was more about the guys. So I do wonder if that sort of redirection also makes it this kind of unusual film. Because, yeah, the, the guys don't factor in it a ton, weirdly. No, no. They're fun. <laughs> it feels like improv corpse. Yeah. You know, like they're just a bunch of guys who got together to throw lines at each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I said corpse, core, but you know what I mean. I know. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's a romantic comedy. You need an ending that yeah. is at least affirmative. Yes. Right? It can't be alone. No, no. Uh, alone is a real tough one to pull off. You see it now and again, uh, and yeah. You know, do you guys all remember Lola versus, I'm trying to think of movies there, where they end up happily alone. Yeah, and like I doesn't, think even Greta Gerwig doesn't remember. No, that. exactly. Yeah. Frances Ha, though. Sure. She's yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. That one was a little bigger than the yeah. ROM, though. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and I also just think the, the chemistry between Eddie Murphy and Halle Berry is so good. Yeah. That wouldn't that just be miserable to <laughs> let, her, let her get away? 
It's it is again. It really is this fascinating thing that yeah. people don't understand was rejected. Mm-hmm. Per, per, well, no, it wasn't right. No, it was yeah, successful. yeah, that's the, even yeah. I'm doing it. Yeah, now. I know, I know, it, it, and, it's, and it's absolutely. It's like, yeah, this is, but yeah, this is within the top. I think twenty films of the year made. Yeah, so it's. I mean, it definitely was seen at the time. Between that and I remember there was a variety piece about that. How between mm-hmm. it was between Boomerang and Distinguished Gentleman, Eddie yeah. Murphy is back, and it's like one yeah. of those. One of those grosses is a lot bigger. Yeah, than yeah. Movie. One of those is a hit movie, and one of those is like okay. He's Disney and, insisting it's fine. Yeah, and I mean that. That's also that's what Reginald Hedlund says. Is he's like the you know. Uh, uh, Boomerang was not Beverly Hills Cop <laughs> fair, <laughs> but doesn't mean it wasn't a hit. But yeah, I and I just think it's a movie that a lot of people would be charmed by if they sat down with. Uh, you kind of have to give it its time to show what it is, like yeah. you say. Yeah, because yeah. if you sit down for even a slightly... Uh, the thing is, is if you sit down for a romantic comedy, it's going to be slightly raunchier and wackier than you <laughs> probably want or expect. And if you sit down for a raunchy, wacky Eddie Murphy movie, there's going to be a lot of these kind of slow romantic scenes that maybe you like and maybe you don't. Yeah. I don't know. But it's, again, the thing that occurs to me now is that that's what Judd Apatow does. Sure. And he's done it for 10 years now? Yeah. 15, Jesus. When was the 20? Yeah. 40-year-old virgin is 2005, six. Yeah, yeah, so let's say 15. Yeah. Ballpark. And no one has a... No problem with that. And his movies are too long. They're <laughs> very long. Yeah, they're they very long. They have wacky sequences we remember and other bits we don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like maybe we just weren't ready for a week. I keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the studios, because yeah. that's really who was calling the shots on it, yeah. weren't ready for a film that was that shaggy and loose. And yeah. Like, and that ex- presumably that expensive, too. Yeah. I mean, Eddie Murphy wasn't cheap in that. No, it's true. Yeah. And I, and I also think that it's just a thing where, you know, uh, Everybody maybe just didn't know what to do next. Uh, Reginald Hudlin talks a lot about uh, he he was modeling his career after George Lucas, right. and he considered this as American graffiti, so he wanted to do his Star Wars next, okay. uh, which sounds great. Uh, unfortunately, it never happened. Uh, but um, he said that he found him and his cohort, which is you know all these people: Ernest Dickerson, uh, Bill Duke. He said that none of them quite understood how to work the system. And he said for a minute that they were allowed to make the movies they wanted to make. And then essentially the wall came up where it's like, now you have to make the movies that we want you to make. And they kind of didn't understand how to play that game. Yeah. And that's what he chalks up. And he's, he even actually interestingly says that he doesn't think it was necessarily a huge systemic failure or anything out to get him. But he just feels like he didn't know how to play the game. And uh, and eventually he was given these other opportunities. Like he did the Great White Hype, not so far after. But it's that's one I I mean I don't remember that one at all. To be honest, I remember I renting it. it as a kid. Yeah, I saw it and I don't remember it. No, yeah. Um, but I'm yeah I'm thinking about 1992 and what else was playing. So what do we have? Okay, Juice, right? Juice, uh, uh, Malcolm X. That was ninety. That's right. That yeah, was 1992. Uh, uh, was Deep Cover 92? Yes, Deep Cover. Yeah. See, Deep Cover is the one that I always point to, and One False Move, right? That's around the same yeah, time. Yeah, I think so. Passenger Fifty Seven is another one. Hooks. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my other Reginald Hudlin love, which is not a good movie, is Bebe's Kids. Do you remember that one? <laughs> the, the animated <laughs> film with Robin. Yeah, Robin Cook. Robin. I got it. I got it. Oh, Robin. Something with an H. I want to say. Oh my God. Robin Cook's casting director. Yeah. You're right. Uh, Harvey. No. Where is it? Harris, Robin Harris. Yes, Robin Harris. Yes, I see. Yeah. 
So that was, I remember Baby's Kids was one of the first R-rated VHSs that we, like, <laughs> snuck. Because obviously the clerk is like, I don't care. Yeah, it's <laughs> what, a cartoon. What Kids do they watch say cartoons. a swear in it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, there's also, that's obviously not one of the big movies. I think it was a horrible commercial failure. Uh, but there's also, like, Just Another Girl in the RRT. And, right. you know, there's ones that were white-directed but black-centered, like White Men Can't Jump and Candyman and things like that. Sure. So, and yeah. So, all in that. All in 1990. Too. And Boys in the Hood was the year before. Yes, I believe so. So is that what happened? I mean, these films were in production, and then as soon as Singleton gets the Oscar nomination, they figure he's good. We stop developing. <laughs> yeah, I, it's very odd. I think, and I think a lot of them shift to to video. You see a lot of those. I mean, Singleton, I think, figured it out kind of. Well, he, he would do he, one for them and one for him. Yeah, like, yeah. This stuff is so whiplash between mm-hmm. artistic and commercial. Yeah, and I think you you saw a lot of people get slowed down, uh, kind of. They're like probably the next movie from a lot of these people came out in 1994, 95. Just got voted uh, to death on the next one. Yeah. Week. Yeah. So I don't know. And then a lot of the thing is, it's a lot of them produced a uh, white starring vehicle, you know, and you don't realize it's them. Right. Um, sure. Which does something. And then TV, of course, there was a big boom and everybody did TV. So all of these directors keep working. But yeah, it is just kind of weird to list like that. A lot of those movies that we listed are probably in the top 50. Huh. Films of the year, they're all pretty good, you know. Yeah, I mean, they one, star Wesley Snipes. One False Move and and, uh, and Deep Cover are yeah. legitimately great yes. genre works. And another no, forgotten one, yeah, right? Yeah, no one talks about yeah. it. I was just going to yeah. say, neither of them is available in high def as far as I know. They might yeah. be streaming, but they're I not on Blu-ray. I think Deep Cover is maybe getting something. Goddamn better. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Uh, that was New Line, right? So Warner Archive yeah. pull it up. Uh, I... I mean, that's a, a, an interesting thing about, oh, you are right, one false move. I, that's totally slipped my mind. Carl Franklin. <laughs> yeah, this and is a, the movie another that, great one. Yeah, and this is the movie that got him Devil in a Blue Dress, yeah. right? Like he, And then he made a Meryl Streep movie. You're yeah. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty good, but still. Yeah. But it's, it's, yeah, it's just fascinating to know these folks working. And, and then the other thing is all these people bring along interesting uh, below-the-line people, too. Sure, yeah. So somebody I love from 1992 is his costume designer, Francine Jameson Tanchuk, who's like, okay, you don't need to know that name. Why would you? She's a costume designer. But she did, like, Boomerang and White Man Can't Jump, okay. which is like, think of these iconic costumes. Like, think of how much this woman affected how people... Like, my brother dressed like White Man Can't Jump for <laughs> six years. Yeah, no, that's uh, true. And, stuff yeah, resonates. And it's... Costumes you could wear as a Halloween costume almost, you know? They're iconic. Right. Uh, and this is all just one woman who is working on almost every movie, which is, yeah, also just fascinating. <laughs> so she has the pulse of, but she's also, yeah, no, I was going to say, the fashion in Boomerang, the women's fashion is mm. like weird and crazy and busy. Yeah, I, and I think that that was on purpose. He mm-hmm. wanted everything. And I think the interesting thing is a, a lot of it's, it is designer fashions. Uh, he is very conscious of having these kind of aspirational tones throughout yeah. the movie. And I also think Grace Jones designed all her own costumes, which is a delight. <laughs> it absolutely feels like she did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the and role... That stuff is in line with her concert oh, work. absolutely. I mean, the role was written for her, so I think he got what Grace Jones's deal is. Because, I mean, that fake Grace Jones ad, while hilarious, is also 100% an ad she would make. <laughs> like, it's like all her weird Citroën ads. It's just the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So it, it, it's just a fascinating time that I think 
I'm ready for, you know, I'm ready for somebody to say, like, this is the 1992 black cinema retrospective. Yeah, like and properly I, excavated all. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that it it's up to, uh, especially viewers, to, people have fond memories of these movies, and they just kind of disappear. And that's a part of our service and a part of our show is trying to remind people, <laughs> you know, the old, like, uh, call your local cinema and demand to see. <laughs> yeah, but I was going to say, yeah. I mean, Sarah Ty Black runs Black Gold mm-hmm. at the Royal Cinema here, and I, I'm pretty sure she's never shown Boomerang, but maybe she. Yeah, I don't know if she'd it. like it or not. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> she's a. Uh, I mean, she is. Yeah, she she does so much work for this concept of like there being a sort of separate canon of films that you can ask any black person if they have seen it, and they're like, absolutely. Yeah. And every white person is like, oh, what? <laughs> I'm trying to remember if Deep Cover was the first one. It was the first she one. Was, yeah, Deep it was Cover. near the first, yeah. Um, yeah, we were, they, we, I had the spotlight, the screening spotlight, mm. now that year, and we we was like, oh, yeah, we're writing about that. We're yeah. doing that. Yeah. And the idea that you can find this stuff if you look for it mm. makes it more valuable, right, culturally, yeah. because even though it's not saturating the the. My, all my, I'm old. All my reference points are the bins. And <laughs> yeah, the sure. Bins. I mean, I'm the same. Yeah. Yeah, I fl- am not you, too young for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go to Sonic Boom and you flip yeah. through the, the shelves, you don't see Boomerang come up a lot. No, and I mean, I know that when we're, we're doing the show and we're, we luckily, the nice thing about having a, a TV show on a TV channel that shows movies is you can kind of call up the programming department and be like, please, please, please. And yeah, Boomerang is just sitting there waiting for somebody to program it and... Yeah, we got it and we put it on air. So it's like, yeah, that's really all it takes is being like, hey, remember Boomerang? Oh, yeah, we should get Boomerang. Bink. Yeah, so how does it fit into this larger project, this year of film that you guys are doing? Uh, well, as, uh, yeah, so we're, we essentially highlight four years in these half-hour episodes. Uh, this year it's 1978, 1992, 2007, and 1983. Um, kind of oddly chosen, obviously. It's a, a weird alchemy to choose the years. I was going to say, how do you even get there? I mean, it's partially looking at our catalog, what we do have, partially considering we do try to highlight films by women and films by people of color, and obviously Canadian films, we're Canadian. Um, So we consider what are good years for that. Um, Then also, just kind of, what do you like? (laughs) Uh, I think for the first season, we wanted to be a little coy and not immediately jump on, you know, 1975, 1984, like the ones you think of 1999 is huge right now. Yeah. 2007 is kind of our big, like, hey, remember how this is kind of a golden year? Um, But yeah, it's a a fun thing. And then as you go through, we sit down with a bunch of various people from around town, a bunch of your former guests, uh, and uh, ask what they like, which then winnows it down kind of differently. You never know if you get 10 movie experts in a room, they all want to advocate for an unusual one. Uh, they all want to maybe have a hot take on a big movie. Sure. Uh, yeah, so it it all kind of changes. And then it comes down to, like you say, what has an HD version? We It's our, in our mandate to show HD movies. Uh, if I had to give one thing, uh, if you hold the rights to a movie, make an HD version of it. Yeah. You're uh, sitting on money. Why are you doing this? I still can't believe that there's <laughs> stuff out there that's only available in like four by three full frame transfers. Yeah. And people are willing to help you. Like people <laughs> want these movies. Uh, it doesn't cost a lot. Uh, yeah. But it's uh, it's really fascinating. This is the first time I've ever, I, I work with uh, Alicia Fletcher, who's a film historian and archivist, yeah. and she does a lot of the right stuff. And this is the first time I've waded into that uh, strange world. And my God, 
It's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating who has the rights for what and what conflicts are coming out. But yeah, as a movie fan, you're just like, everybody make up and <laughs> give me these movies. And especially in this world where we're streaming so much, uh, our channel is focused from the 70s to the 2000s, uh, our four channels. And yeah, there's so much that doesn't get played. Yeah. Oh, this whole long tail thing hasn't quite happened the way people thought no. it right? Like you can find a lot of some stuff and yeah. none of the others. Yeah, and something as big as Boomerang is already like semi-faded into obscurity. Yeah. So it's a it's a very interesting thing. So part of this show is, you know, propping up the big stuff. We're not, we're not going to avoid the Oscar winners. Sure. Uh, you know, we're we're not going to avoid Days of Heaven or something that is super canonical for well, people will complain if it's not there, right? Like, yeah. it, it's the other thing. Like, yes. Anytime anyone makes a list, it's like, well, what about this thing <laughs> I love? And it's like, well, you love it. Yeah. You know it's there. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, as like we're talking about with the, the streaming wars, <laughs> uh, the rights become more and more uh, tight. The plus side is photos. They're always available. <laughs> Just try to take my photos, Disney. Uh, don't actually do that. But, uh, um, yeah, so it becomes this kind of interesting game. But I, f- I find that there's a lot of uh, fascinating takes in a lot of movies you don't expect, um, like Boomerang. Uh, and trends, like we're also trying to figure out what happened in a specific year, which is very odd. Film history doesn't... You tend to do decades. You tend to do yeah, I mean, movements. Well, it takes... 18 months to yeah. two and a half years to make a movie, right? So you yeah. can never, you're always seeing, like my, my classic argument is, what was it, 95 when we got Braveheart and Rob Roy and there was mm. at least one other one. was like, where did these all, why is everyone making these yeah. movies? And it's like, well, three years ago, Michael Mann made Last of the Mohicans yeah. and every guy in Hollywood's like, I can do that. Yeah. I can do that. And then five years after that, you get Gladiator. Which is, I guess, somebody being like, Ridley Scott being like, ah, oh, I didn't get to make yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. hey, you forgot me. It I definitely was squall. involves a lot of picking, like, what was the big... Yeah, so we're, I mean, we're starting our season two, with, and one is 1986. And 1986 is full of killer robots, and like you say, because yeah. I think Terminator, Terminator made sure. so much money two years before, and it was essentially an independent film, so... All these weird studios are like, listen, if we just buy a robot, <laughs> that's the hot money. Short Circuit that year? Short Circuit. Uh, you've got a Deadly Friend, that oh, old God, Wes Craven one. Uh, Chopping Mall. <laughs> all the great robot I, movies. I reviewed them all. So, <laughs> I had a so yeah, this is, maybe this will be PTSD in show form for oh, you. God. To bring back all these uh, strange films. Well, if you just need a cut to a, a guest sitting in a corner shaking, <laughs> I can happily provide that. I think that we have a, a lot of that with some of the elder <laughs> critics who've been around a while. They're, they're disgusted trying to remember what Grease was like when it came out and things like that. Grease I saw with a packed theater at the yeah. age of, I think, 10 and people. That, yeah. was a, that was an experience. I don't even remember what theater it was. I just remember <laughs> it was dark and huge. Well, I mean, that was the John Travolta year. That's what we talk about is 78, mm. because it was the tail end of Saturday Night Fever, which was in December of the year before. Right. It was all the weird, I mean, there's the strange one where he falls in love with Lily Tomlin. Oh, moment that, to moment. <laughs> yeah, which is not bad. But no, wasn't that actually written and directed by her partner? Yes, yeah, Jane, I believe so. Uh, Jane, who God. wrote the Search for Signs, Jane Wagner. Yes, there you Search go. Search for Signs of Intelligence. Yeah, Life. so that's like a fascinating one because it's this weird May-December romance. We don't get into it on the show because that's a bit look, too much of an oddity. It's fine. I kind of want to watch that again just now because that's a that is ultimately I I don't know if she was openly gay but that is a, yeah. a gay woman making a movie 
with her partner yeah. about a heterosexual relationship. It's probably that one of itself. the only ones. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a box of mirrors yeah. and, and also John Travolta being weird. So yes. what other extra lines yeah. in there? Yeah, arguably two gay people making a well, movie. Maybe, it allegedly. Of, but that's what I mean. Like everybody brings their own baggage. Yeah. And also, they have no chemistry. Like, yes. The only thing I rem- the only thing I remember mm-hmm. about that movie is those people should not be in the same room, <laughs> let alone kissing. Yeah, and they, I mean, neither it, of them looks comfortable. It's a strange, tough sell too. Yeah. It's, and I mean, even if the best case scenario, John Travolta at his best and Lily Tomlin at her best are not a good couple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> them at their sexiest, best chemistry, it would never connect. No, you know? in what They're, way does the zeitgeist align to produce those two <laughs> people in the same place in the same studio picture? Yeah, it's very odd. I'm trying to think of some of the other. Uh, one of the weird 78 movies we do is Thank God It's Friday, that disco oh, one with Donna Summer. Yeah, uh, just to kind of find an odd disco one. That's another one we worked hard with distributors to show on the channel. So if you want to see a young Jeff Goldblum uh, attempting to dance or or uh, Terry Nunn from uh, Berlin in her one lead acting role. I did not uh, remember. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's kind of huh. weird ones. And then, yeah, 1983 is a, that big year for Tom Cruise. It's, he's kind of the, sure. it's his risky business year. Uh, it's also, we get to see uh, Travolta go from the King to Staying Alive, <laughs> um, which is, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Just coincidentally, we chose the year where he's great and the year where he nearly ruins his career yeah. being so ridiculous. Um, and yeah, 92 is actually kind of a weird one because it's, you know, it's uh, El Mariachi, it's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, no, 92, I'd still, like, that's Reservoir Dogs, mm. that's... Um, Bad Lieutenant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the other? Because that was that was the year I held up as being it may still be the best year I ever had at TIFF. Okay, where everything. Uh, Peter Jackson was there with Brain Dead. Yeah. I mean, just the Midnight Madness alone. Candyman's in there. Right? Yeah, and uh, it was Candyman and Brain Dead, which was now called Dead Alive. Mm-hmm. And there was another one. Oh, uh, Man Bites Dog mm. on the Criterion. Uh, yeah, channel I now, fought hard for that one, was, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's one that I, I remember as a kid getting a VHS of, and whoa, that blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> when you're a little kid seeing this Jesus. reality TV parody before reality TV exists, kind of. Yeah, like, what I a, remember what a movie. thinking just how I, I actually got to talk to the filmmakers on mm. that one because I was covering it uh, for the star, and I remember just like, you have a sound mixing joke in your film. Yeah. <laughs> there is a joke about the sound coming from a different location <laughs> yeah. in a long hallway, and it's just like, how do you even think about that? And it's like, we didn't think about it. It's just how we recorded it. It's like, it's brilliant. It's like, well, we just, <laughs> yeah. it just happened. The fact that there's another film crew following around another murderer. Oh, God. God. No. See Man Bites Dog People. It's yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually like highly recommend just going back to a year. I really enjoyed myself as much as it's a punishingly large amount of movies <laughs> to try to give everyone their fair shake. Um, yeah, it's it's just fun to go back. And even going back, we, uh, we have a little fun with... Uh, the archival stuff because that's Alicia's whole bag. So we show old ads, oh you know, uh, old. So even just some the the introduction of chicken McNuggets happens in <laughs> one episode. So it's like uh, you know five seconds of chicken McNuggets is that kind of full injection of nostalgia or making fun of like a great ad with for Netflix when Netflix was will mail it to your house. Like, right. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. God. Yeah. Like how much. How much changes and how much you remember of just strange little moments is 
it's really wonderful, uh, and I'm, I, I hope that that connects with people. <laughs> I never know. And, the, and then the plus side is, again, working. we get to work at a nice channel where after every episode we get to be like, uh, if you were interested in Days of Heaven, here's Days of Heaven. Uh, here's Batman Returns. Here's Boomerang. Uh, Zodiac. You know, we're, we're trying to also get people interested in thinking about that aspect. And, and you know, thinking about Hollywood films uh, and how they might impact culture and vice versa. Yeah, it's never just for money. I mean, yeah. sometimes it is. The Lion King uh, yeah. this year was. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's one of those things where there was a, a really um, heated conversation a little while ago between some critics over... You know, like must we like must we support Disney and Netflix whenever mm. they put something out? And it's like, well, yeah, no. Yeah. But you can't deny that they own most of the real estate, and therefore mm. they're throwing money at all kinds of people. I just found out that Black Widow is written by Ned Benson, who made the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, which is oh. my second favorite film of this yeah. decade. Yeah, and he's kind of disappeared. He himself. hasn't done anything. Yeah. He hasn't done anything <laughs> since that in 2013. Yeah. And if that's what it takes for Disney, yeah. if Disney owning the world means this guy gets to work, then I have to be okay with it. Or at least I have to want them to pay him money to do things. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely think that there's also, I think it's foolish, personally, especially with our perspective on history. Like, number one, you're kind of always uh, under pressure and always given a privilege to dis- when you display history because you are choosing the narrative and you are implicitly removing things from the narrative, sure, yeah. whether you mean to or not. Well, um, the act of mentioning something is a form of endorsement once yeah. you get to a certain point. And the act of not mentioning something. And even if we mention something just to dunk on it, which we don't much, mm. but, you know, I know who killed me gets a segment. Oh. So, But, uh, but that that's too. weird because now people, someone will remember that more than they remember a good movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that there's a very bad thing. And it, goes back to Boomerang. I think that there's something odd to ignoring a popular movie. Um, I think some popular movies are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're prepping 1994, and I hate Forrest Gump, and <laughs> I think we all agree Forrest Gump is a bit of a miss. We can talk about that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but um, it's odd to just ignore something that people like, you know? As yeah. much as I can definitely have all sorts of ethical issues with Disney, but... People love that service, and they're talking about it. And even if you look at the discourse on Netflix, like the way The Irishman and Marriage Story blew up on Twitter is fascinating. And that would never happen if they were art house releases. Like a Noah Baumbach movie having like a hashtag and everyone fighting about it. And memes. It has memes. It's a Noah Baumbach movie. (laughs) Like what? And like the fact that, yeah, there can be this, you know, these strange jokes about Anna Paquin you know, oh, th- sure. that have been memed to death now. But it's a meme that everybody gets because everybody watched the Irish, or enough of the yeah. Irishman, or Did they, they understand. Did they if they watched Maybe not. <laughs> it's a long road. It's tough. I definitely had to, like, set out my snacks and put my <laughs> phone away. Um, but, yeah, it's, so I, I don't know. It's tough because I do think that there's a real danger in blindering yourself to just the best movies. And I mean, you uh, you know, it's like uh, it's like filling yourself with candy when you only watch Criterion Channel. Yeah. And uh, and you they start to blend together like any other movie. You can't just watch good stuff. You kind of kind of have to have a grab bag. And that's what makes movies like Boomerang stand out because it's weird. <laughs> uh, it's it's memorable and unique and it's something that 
sometimes when you go back to these old movies, you're like, oh, wait, that actually had a lot of merit. And I just remember it, especially your child brain is like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Everything kind of turns fine is the unfortunate thing. Well, if you watched it enough times on cable where mm-hmm. you weren't really demanding anything of it. I mean, I, or it I, was bleeped, for instance. Oh, <laughs> this true. one was so probably bleeped all to hell. Out, yeah. yeah. But it is, like, it, you're right. It stands out because it is neither nor. It's, it's mm-hmm. not terrible and it's not great, but it is, in its way, the only one of its kind. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, even even if you remove all blackness from it, it is a very unique movie and idea and premise. Uh, yeah, it's a very end tone. Mm-hmm. I love a weird tonal comedy. Like, I love some movie that's not funny for 90 minutes and then five minutes is knees <laughs> slapping. Like, what is that? How did that happen? Delayed gratification. <laughs> or a really long orgasm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Maybe we should just have that. <laughs> My thanks to Cameron Maitland whose 1992 episode of A Year in Film premieres on Hollywood Sweet 90s at 9pm this Sunday, December 22nd. And check out the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast wherever you find your audio entertainments. It's a fun, lively show that rounds up all sorts of great guests to dig through the entirety of Canadian cinema, both the good and the bad. You can find Cameron on Twitter at Camfess, C-A-M-F-E-S-S, and you can find Boomerang on DVD only from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also on iTunes and Google Play, and streaming on Amazon Prime Video in Canada, and also in Canada, it's airing on Hollywood Suite on December 20th and 21st. That's Friday and Saturday. And since I'm saying Hollywood Suite a lot, I should also let you know that all four channels are available in a free preview running through January 5th, 2020. Check your television provider for listing information. You still have a television provider, right? As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our shiny new theme song is by The Last Year. If you've enjoyed it, or the show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're good. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. See you next week.